Listener Production. Punchy, whacked, power, influence. Take me seriously because I've actually got some clout behind what I'm saying. Welcome to Women with Clout. <laughs> In today's episode, we're talking to Noreen Young. If there's an issue that needs someone to be speaking out loud and proud about it, Noreen's at the forefront, a leading voice and an outspoken advocate for Indigenous rights, for women, for diversity, for public education, uh, against domestic violence. I've um, always admired Noreen. I think she is a wonderful advocate and I remember her when she was at the Diversity Council of Australia where she did a great job. So she has a very interesting background in the union movement and I think she's always been a role model. And now she's an academic. She's a Professor of Indigenous Policy at the University of Technology, Sydney. And uh, nevertheless, despite the academia, Noreen Young, you can always rely on her to call a spade a bloody shovel. Tell us a bit, Noreen, about your background, your upbringing, your family, your parents. Who made you who you are? I'm really, really lucky. I'm a big mix. Um, My grandfather on my dad's side um, was president of the Sydney branch of the Waterside Workers' Federation for 20 years. So 1951 to 1971, he was on the left. He was a progressive. So very difficult times and, and times where he had to be, where all of them in that union had to be very coalitionist and, and had to act very much as a collective. His father came from Sweden. Um, my great-grandfather was an illegal immigrant who jumped ship and, and I recently found out from Christina Keneally that, or, you know, about a year ago, um, that her great-grandfather was also in the same boat, pardon the pun, and Aunty Pat Anderson as wow. well. So, yeah. But all three of us had great-grandfathers who jumped ship from Sweden, um, which, of course, is such a maritime country. So, And we didn't um, – we kept that name for a couple of generations. And so um, my father and my grandfather certainly um, were – we still identify as culturally diverse and they copped a lot of racism – and so that really formed me. Um, my parents are progressive people. They're not together. They haven't been together for a long time, but they raised us in an atmosphere of um, progressivism, of anti-racism, um, of diversity. Um, you know, my father had been a musician. There were always gay men hanging around, um, not so many lesbians actually, but and from the waterfront, of course, which mm. was such a diverse culture and, and there was a lot of, of gay men um, just always around. And so um, I consider myself very, very fortunate to have been raised in that environment. Mm. Where, whereabouts? In, in Cronulla. In Cronulla. Yeah. So you're a coastal girl. I'm a Cronulla chick. Yeah. Um, my mother's family moved out there post-World War II, um, war service home. And um, so my grandfather was a small business person. Her father was a small business person um, and ran a local real estate. You know, they had lots of businesses, worked very hard. And um, my dad grew up in Oatley um, and but caught the train to surf from the age of about 13 and was a, a gun surfer, like a pretty legendary. There's plaques with him on it down at Cronulla. And so we just grew up on the beach and grew up to love the ocean. What did your parents 
want you or what did they talk to you about for your future? Well, they didn't really. I just don't think neither of them had been to university and my uncle had gone to Teachers College, which is I think why I went to Teachers College because it was what we knew of tertiary education and I I don't think any we didn't talk about it actually. I mean, my sister and I went to a selective high school, went to St George because my mum had been there for a year before she got sick and then she left. Um, and Dad really wanted us to go to St George and not go to Cronulla High because he didn't think we would miss. He didn't think we would mix in diversity if we went to Cronulla High, and we had this marvelous opportunity. Because those selective schools, you could go there if your mum went there or your dad went there in those days, and it was at Cogra. And Dad thought was had this really strong view that we should mix with people who weren't like us, whereas if we went to Cronulla High, we would just be mixing with people who were like us. And I'm really grateful for that. Um, I it, it, My cohort at school was mostly Greek and Macedonian, and I'm so grateful for that. Mm, Greek yeah, chicks are the best. <laughs> yeah. They sure are. Did, did going to a selective high school, um, did that fire your ambitions or? Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's really interesting. I'm not an academic and I didn't finish my degree when I first left school. I was naughty and or having a good time or enjoying myself. We've had a few interviewees who've had stories like that. Yeah. Okay. Well, I I did teaching, which I think women from my kind of background, you either did teaching or nursing. nursing. My sister's a nurse. She finished her degree. I didn't finish and I didn't want to be a teacher in a school after my first couple of pracs. So I, I went and did a TESOL, teaching English as a second or other language course. And that actually, apart from my upbringing, sparked my interest in diversity because we were teaching kids and adults um, from mainland China. And then I was involved in Young Labor and I got a job as an electorate officer um, for Peter Baldwin MP. And um, I was around the labour movement and what was then the Independent Teachers Association. I went for a job there as a clerk and the General Secretary, Dick Shearman, who is still a mentor of mine, rang me back and said, look, we want to organise in the English language colleges and you've worked in them and would you like to come on for three months to organise in the English language colleges? And I just thought, I said yes, because I knew that they needed to be unionised. And so I went there for three months and I recruited so many people that they kept me on and I worked there for four years. And then you, I mean, fast forwarding probably, the New South Wales Working Women's Centre. Um, yes, yeah, so I then worked for another union and, and the thing I didn't realise at the time, because I went to the ITA, it's now the Independent Education Union, but it was the ITA then when I was 24 and so, and I was a feminist, obviously, and I didn't realise how incredibly progressive it was. There was lots of senior women in the union and because the industry was so feminised, you know, we had things, I remember we we considered it a really big victory when we got in the award automatic progression for uh, you had an increment for every three years that you spent outside the industry and, and the ITA was the first union in the sector that got this. Every year, three years that you spent outside the industry, child rearing or bearing was considered an increment. Mm. So you went up in the pay scale mm. and I just, that was, you know, I just had no idea how good they were at the time, right? Mm. And you thought was, this was normal. I thought this was normal and they were run, there was obviously men at the top of the leadership group but lots and lots of women around and then I went to a union that was non-aligned and it 
I moved into having to work with the very conservative unionists at the national level and it was gobsmacking just how incredibly regressive they were. They were there to stop women participating in the workforce. So I did that for four years and I became secretary of that union. Um But I looked at the women leadership of the trade union movement at the time and I wanted another baby. I had one, we had one, and I wanted my second one and I just thought, you just can't do both Mm. at that time. You couldn't do, and it was the emotional energy. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So the vacancy came up as director of the Working Women's Centre and it was actually um, Sally McManus um, who I'd worked with and seen her come up as this incredible young organiser. She was on the board of management of the Working Women's Centre and she said, I, I really think we need you there as director. And I said, okay, and applied. And I thought, well, if I can't work flexibly there and raise yes. two kids, where can I yeah, work yeah. as an employment You've practitioner? Walk, walk yeah, the talk. where can I? And that was interesting though with some of the board of management Members, I want to take you back a bit though, because you said I was a feminist. Obviously, how did you become a feminist? Why was it obviously? Was it that your mother was, that your father was? How? Look, my mother was in the seventies, and my parents were in the seven. Like this was the seventies, right? And they were progressive people. I can remember the books that were in our cupboard that I used to look at when I was five and six, when I could first read, were the book that I forget its name by Peter Wilderblood. Um, who was a gay man in the UK and he went to jail for homosexuality and he wrote about that. I forget what his book was called. It was about law reform. There was the female eunuch and women of my generation, my best friend, Sylvianne Heim and I talk about how we were scared of the cover of that, you know, how it has a kind of... Yes, a hanging torso. Yeah, I remember Such a striking cover and mum read Fear of Flying and, you know, they. my kids now go, oh, you're talking about our grandparents, but mum and dad were always getting their gear off and all of that kind of stuff, you know. It was the 70s and it was Cronulla, right? So, you know, it was very sexist down there, really sexist and I hated it. Um, so just, I suppose, home and St George, again, I think I was a bit spoilt. You had no idea when you walked out of there that there wasn't anything you couldn't do. I think at those selective girls' schools, you know, you, you really thought that you could do anything and I didn't know what I wanted to do, but I think I then, when I worked out what I wanted to do, which was work and employment, um, then I think that really made my feminism ironclad. So I wanted to ask you about um, Diversity Council, uh, which of course won't be a familiar organisation to some of the people listening, so you might want to explain a little bit. Tell us a little bit about that. So I worked in employment and by this time I'd become fairly strategic about career. And the other reason I left the union movement when that vacancy came up at Working Women's was that um, someone said to me, and they're absolutely right, and I was I was 31, um, there's nothing more X than an ex-union official, right? Because it is hard to get work mm. after you've been a union official. And so I thought that um, then having that experience in the community sector was going to be really valuable and it absolutely was and I loved that job in many ways. But then Diversity Council, then the then 
MD, I think she was, of the Diversity Council said, do you want to come and do some consulting? And I thought, well, that would totally round me off and round me out because I'd worked in the union movement and in the community sector and Working Women's and Job Watch, the Working Women's Centres and Job Watch are the only community sectors, community sector orgs that have ever existed to exclusively look after work. Um, and then going to um, a, an organisation that was kind of soft employer is what GCA is, I thought that would really give me extraordinary experience. What do you mean by soft employer? Well, they are an, they are, they are an employer association. They're not a registered organisation of employers, so they can't make appearances in the commission, but they were actually started by the Business Council. Okay. So you've really gone, in a way, from the, the workers' side yeah. to the... Employers. Yeah, well, yes, and I wanted that, but it's soft employer, right? So yeah. we weren't out advocating for, um, you know, pay decreases yeah, or getting rid of penalty, rate. rid of penalty yeah. rates or any of those things. We were advocating for diversity and, to be honest, the trade union movement had really frustrated me at that very senior level. They just didn't get it. It's why, you know, one of the things that motivated me to leave I mean, in fact, I was dealing in in the ASU in those days with people who were National Civic Council who were motivated by stopping progressive things happening, right? So, you know, I went on maternity leave once and one of the senior national officials were working with Qantas, with the Qantas unions, and there was a whole conglomerate of, of unions. And when I came back from maternity leave, this person had bargained away the six weeks paid maternity leave mm. in an enterprise bargaining round, right? That was the real clincher, actually, I just thought. With these people in charge and, you know, the promise of union amalgamations had, we all thought, I think, on the left that we would have more support to do progressive things, but we didn't. And so it was just like, threw my hands up. So going to DCA was great and we advocated for diversity um, practice and so it wasn't and so the union movement wasn't necessarily doing that. No. Right? In those days and there's been much, much change around that. Women were um, but they had to get through a lot of um, conservative male leadership in order to do that. Mm. Um, and so So DCA the unions in that. a way modelled were a kind of carbon copy of what was going on in corporates. Oh, absolutely. But I but worse because that National Civic Council push in the 50s was certainly still in play um, and I think really it's only just changed over the last five years or so where that's really gone now. Yeah. But it was very strong and it was um, extremely conservative. And it was sort of based around the whole idea of the male breadwinner. Absolutely. Well, it was model. keeping, like, yeah. their aim was to keep women out of the workforce. Yep. Yep. They should stay right. home, look after the kids. Absolutely. And have lots of them. Yeah. yeah. It was, you know, and, and it's really interesting. In Ireland, I noticed the other day they're um, having a referendum around that clause in the constitution that talks about um, women being in the home and, you know, they call it's a devil era thing. Mm. And it was the same. It was exactly, that was the mentality I was dealing with. So it's a, it's an outgrowth of Catholicism really, conservative Catholicism. I think Catholicism. it's a conservative Catholicism, yeah. yeah. Certainly one of the underpinnings. Yeah. Um, when you're at Diversity Council and, uh, you know, I often interviewed you and, yep. and we'd, we'd turn up at, at events together yep. and you were always very strong on that message that women from all kinds of backgrounds, that we had to talk about every, yep. every woman, yep. if you like. Yeah. Um, 
Um, and you've also been quite critical of something you call corporate feminism. Yeah. I just wondered if you could explain a little bit about that. Pardon my ignorance, but I've often wondered what the term corporate feminism actually means. I get a picture in my head of women in, you know, um, smart business suits and cloppy heels with little bobs um, busily running around being important, but I don't really know what it means. Mm. I think that for a long time at the Fin Review, um, one of the things that the women there who were involved in writing about this, me and a number of colleagues, um, we'd take umbrage at the fact that they'd often use an image of a stiletto heel yeah. whenever anything came yeah. up well, that's about what I said, yeah. around in yeah. women in business. And, of yeah. course, when I wrote Corporate Woman, it was called Corporate Woman. Yeah. It wasn't meant to be just for the people no. right at the top. The point was women working in, in yeah, admittedly, probably white-collar environments, yeah. large organisations, but it was certainly about the pay gap for all women, yeah. um, the lack of promotion, the lack of appropriate uh, reward and recognition. So I think for me that it did become co-opted a bit into this yep. whole shtick about yep. becoming a leader, yep. climbing the ladder, yep. and it was very individualistic. Yep. Uh, it was very much about empowering much. yourself, yes. improving mm. yourself yes. as an individual, climbing yep. that ladder and getting that scarce opportunity. Yeah. Whereas of course it's it's not about the individual no. in my in my analysis, but that's that was my thinking. I don't know about I, you. I think that, that you've summed it up, Catherine. I mean some feminists, um, particularly younger ones coming through who I think resent it enormously and, and rightly, um, see it as um even broader than that and and certainly being about the individualistic approach and having gone beyond the workplace. And what I found irritating at the time, and I think we've paid dearly for this and we're still paying, is that we went from discussing women at work to discussing women in corporate workplaces. And so the focus of um, the 80s and 90s, for example, that led to the setup, the establishment of the Working Women's Centres. So um, if people don't remember that, that was during um, when Laurie Brereton was the Industrial Relations Minister and it was a trade-off with, with trade union women, with ACTU women um, around the Accord bargaining round at the time that introduced enterprise bargaining because um, a lot of women, progressive women, said enterprise bargaining is going to be bad for women because, mm. and it was, and so the the working women's centres were established to provide information and, and to provide that extra. As it turned out, we ended up being a triage service basically for women who had horrible things happen to them at work because we ran an advice service. But When you say horrible things happen to them at work, are you talking about are uh, being cheated out of their pay or are you talking about sexual harassment? A lot of sexual harassment, a lot of um, wages and conditions inquiries around being cheated out of pay, lot of bullying, what we then developed as what was bullying, which we didn't call it bullying then, and but that was developed by the Queensland Working Women's Service actually, really introduced that as a concept in Australia. Um, so, so how I think this all transpired... Catherine, is that we went through a stage where at the Sex Discrimination Commissioner leadership level, which is very much a leadership position in this country of feminism and seen as that in the media, all that was discussed was women on boards. Right. Now, to me, that's really problematic and I think we're wearing that now in terms of women's working conditions. Certainly a lot of discussion around women in leadership, in leadership which, which is, yeah. of course, the business schools love yeah. and the corporates and love. And so they should. And, and, of course, it's important. Of course it's important. It's the concentration on that, it's, I, I suspect, that which is, can feel very issue. unrelatable to yeah. a lot of women. Yeah. 
in white collar environments, yeah. but in very low skilled, low yeah. paid jobs, and and of course yeah. all other sectors. And that was yeah. the other thing I used to think about the banks, and I used to think, well, okay, we're really putting all this human rights energy. I'm no, I've never been convinced that it's a human right to sit on a board, mm. for women to sit on a board, and I've never been convinced that our Human Rights Commission should have been putting focus and finan- its scant financial resources there. Um, but what are we asking of these women once they're on those boards? Are we saying to those women on the boards of banks, for example, that they should be pushing pay equity audits across their workforces? Are we saying that they should be pushing mutually beneficial flexibility across their workforces. So all the focus went into women at the top and women um, in low-paid positions in those sectors as well as in the low-pay industries were just neglected at that policy change level and at that policy input level um, at that level in Australia. Do you see that changing at all? No. No. Uh, I think that um, the resurgence of the trade union movement is very useful in those terms. I think the Me Too movement is very useful in that way. I think that there are things happening, but I think we still need to use, I think we need to use what we've got. I think um, Wajia's legislative frameworks could be given a lot more clout and they could be expanded out to women um, at other ends of the employment market. And again, at the same time, um, you know, Wajia was undergoing um, a review of the legislation and again, um, we didn't get input um, from the trade union movement as it should have been. And I, I think we can use these things and integrate them and use all the legislative frameworks we've got to benefit all women. That's right, because one doesn't cancel out the other, does it? No, I mean, you've got to have women. I mean, that's what we're talking about in this podcast series about women with clout and that capacity to be around the decision-making table. But, of course, it has to be... All women. It's got to be wider than that. I think I've got an inkling, but maybe not. What was it about enterprise bargaining that ended up being so bad for women. Why Why did that not work? Well, the regulated labour system, so centralised wage fixing delivered a regulated um, mechanism of delivering wage increases for all people, right? But what we always said and what feminists always said when the discussion was starting to be had was that um, where enterprise bargaining was going to work, which is how the world was viewed at the time, was in the big manufacturing shops and was in the big unionised industries where you could divide shops into a ferry port or a bit of the waterfront Mm. or, you know, a factory um, in the automotive industry, for example. But where women worked, particularly in the clerical and retail sectors, the unions were hopeless, mm. right? And in those days, and there's major change there, which is just delightful, um, in the retail sector in particular, but and they just weren't organised, mm. right? So women would not have the bargaining capacity to negotiate enterprise by enterprise. Women relied on the award system mm-hmm. to deliver wages and it's born, it's absolutely what's happened. And I also think always in these discussions, while we're still in denial, and maybe Me Too is also breaking down denial to some extent. Yeah. Um, while we spent such a long time in denial, so we would say basically there is no discrimination, you know, 
We didn't, but there was a sizable number of people, many of them on the conservative sides of politics, who said and still say there is no disadvantage. Yeah. Women, it's all in your head, you know, blah, blah, blah. Just work harder, have more merit, all that nonsense. Well, if you don't acknowledge that being female is a deficit in the workplace and a disadvantage, then you can ride roughshod over those people because you are simply refusing to accept that what you judge as merit often involves having a dangly bit between your legs. And if you haven't got that, you're just automatically seen as not well, having... Well, it goes to whole industries. Correct. Right? And that was always the argument as well. Like, how are a teacher director, um, a TAFE-qualified worker and two untrained assistants in a childcare centre going to bargain with their negotiate with their management committee on, or worse still, with their for-profit employer in... In, a, in that industry, right? It's just not going to happen. And, and you know, all of this, all of the things we said have come true, um, which is very disappointing, but that's the reality of it. And, you know, I'm an employment practitioner. I'm about wages and I'm about women being paid in the same way that men are for the work we do. Hooray to that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I was going to ask you about your outlook and your, your feeling of optimism rather than And, you know, I've got an indelible image um, of you winning your Women of Influence Award. That was when such we first a lovely set it up, night, it was fantastic. It? We yeah. had no idea if it would succeed. No. You won the diversity category and Noreen got up and used an, a, a, an expletive and said, I never win anything. Yeah, I never <laughs> do. <laughs> but it was very, but, but actually you've been a leader in so many ways and you've Thanks, got enormous Catherine. clout and mm. you're a great inspiration. I just wondered when you look ahead, what are the things that give you cheer and what are the things that you think, well, you know. Oh, look, I'm inherently cheery, which can be problematic sometimes because there's times when I really shouldn't be. I think that the Me Too movement is is really... Me too, yeah got capacity and it, it's already changing. I also think that, um, and you've all got daughters, so you know that they're just, I've got a 17-year-old daughter and a 23-year-old son who is delightful um, and my partner's delightful and, and I've got a really nice dad, so Harry couldn't have, he's had good men around him and lots of others in our broad kind of friendship and community collective. But I these young women just don't take can I say shit? Yeah, yeah. say shit. It's a podcast. They just don't take <laughs> shit like we do. Like my daughter, there's no question as to whether she's a feminist or not. Um you know, she's an activist. Um I just think it's different and she kind of looks at me as if I'm an idiot all the time, which you mm. all well, know. She's 17. Well, yeah, she's yeah. also a child. Yeah, you know, that's what yeah, they do. Yeah, that's what your they child, do. You know, yeah. I've got a 31-year-old and, and she's two still kids looking at and you like she you're still an occasionally idiot. goes, oh, for God's sake. Yeah. Uh, you know, that's <laughs> yeah. pretty typical. Yeah. It's been fantastic and having an you as a guest, as always, Noreen, and wonderful to hear about your, your incredible um, clout. Thank oh, you so much for being with us. It's been fun. Women with Clout is presented by Jane Caro and Catherine Fox. Producer Lip Crown. Theme music composed and performed by David Beckingham. Listener.